welcome back to another episode of the Dunkin' with Dom podcast. Micah, two huge game sevens today, both epic blowouts. We've got the conference final set up for both the East and the West. We need to break it all down. It's good to have you on, on the pod. Absolutely. I am happy to be here as always. I will say on the behalf of the game sevens today, I got really hyped up before both of them, especially before the first one where my two title picks that come out of East out of each conference, I would say I felt good about them until in the first game about midway through the second quarter when it realized to me that Brooke Lopez, we saw the great and the poor of him. And then in the second game, I would say that I was most hyped as soon as I saw maybe the Phoenix Suns come out of the tunnel and they were going through their handshakes. And then I got one look at Luka Doncic and then I realized, you know what? I think that I put my money in the wrong hands. Yeah, it, it, it was that type of day-to-day for the two, what I thought were the favorites for both series is, again, we are taping this as Dallas is just beat Phoenix like five minutes ago and hours after Milwaukee got crushed by Boston. I think what we're going to do here is let's start with the Western Conference, talk about the game we just saw, the impacts for both teams, and, of course, previewing the Golden State versus Dallas series, and then we'll switch out east and do that same format. First off, Micah, big takeaways from was a big blowout by the Dallas Mavericks series. Signature Luka Doncic game. Spencer Dinwiddie off the bench, just complete heat check on his part. Devin Booker and Chris Paul were horrible for the entire game. What's the big takeaway for you? The big takeaway for me, honestly, is that the big three of Dallas, Luka, Dinwiddie, and Brunson combined for 89 just barely being outpaced by the entire Phoenix Suns team as of the very end of the game. And that was 35 in 30 minutes for Luka Doncic, who didn't play at all in the fourth quarter. And this was a complete from the beginning of the game because they came out with a lot of fire. And we could see right away that the Dallas Mavericks had a defensive game plan to throw at a lot of the Phoenix ball handlers. Every time you would get a ball screen, and Devin Booker would try and curl, or CP3 would try to get running going downhill, he would see extra white jerseys all over the place, forcing those guys to give it up. And then you're basically playing four on three on the back end and daring guys like Jay Crowder and Mikhail Bridges to create off the dribble something outside of their forte. And the big three of the Phoenix Suns never got going at all. In fact, it was just the second time in – NBA playoff history that during a first half of basketball, not a single starter scored more than five points. So (laughs) yeah, at one point Cameron Johnson was leading with like nine points. And I was like, oh (laughs) it was that kind of game. And I can speak on and on about the defensive game plan of the Dallas Mavericks, but to me, this is just a completely different Phoenix Suns team than I've seen all season. And we talked about this in our last episode, but this series didn't actually feature any close games at all, which was something that was one of the true strengths of the Phoenix Suns throughout the season. They were one of the all-time great clutch teams, and they never really got to prove that. And now we've seen that this was the largest Game 7 point differential since 2008. Just a total masterpiece on Dallas' side, and this game was essentially over by midway through the second quarter. So the big takeaway that stands out for me, and surprisingly, you only name-dropped him one time, 
A big underwhelming thing from this series was DeAndre Aiden. Because when I was watching this game, Dallas went at him every single play. They would just run pick and roll. Uh, what they would do is on defense, they would basically trap Booker and Paul and either make Paul go left and make Booker pass and make Jay Crowder and DeAndre Aiden facilitate. And then after that, they would basically, on pick and roll, make DeAndre Aiden ISO, uh, play ISO defense against Dinwiddie, against Doncic, and it was a total catastrophe. But the funniest part about all this to me is the free agency component. Because remember how that Phoenix was like, I don't want to pay DeAndre Aiden the max, and DeAndre Aiden's like, I deserve the max. I think this series, as crazy as it sounds, I think Phoenix was kind of right to not give DeAndre Aiden the full max because his value was so limited in this game. He couldn't do anything offensively with a smaller Dallas lineup and he was picked apart defensively as well. Yeah. He really has to keep working at that 18 foot range when it comes to a jump shot uh, off the catch from the elbow. But to me, really, this is just something that the Dallas backcourt, as well as Spencer Dinwiddie pouring in 30 off the bench. That's a playoff career high for him. These are things that I just did not see coming. Outside of everybody except for Luca, who I fully expect to show up as he did in masterful fashion. But man, Luca Doncic in this series single handedly outplayed both Booker and Paul combined. Which we, which we, by the way, we did, we did talk about this like before this, the series started. We were like, there is a world out there in which, as much as combined, they're better, Luca could just outplay the two of them and get his 07 LeBron comparison going, which is what happened. Yeah. That's absolutely what we see on full display here. Luka Doncic was able to get going left and right. There really was not a coverage that Phoenix threw at him. They switched about 70% of those high ball screens, which you're just playing with fire at that point. Once Luka is matched with DeAndre Ayton, Ayton's decent enough when it comes to a big trying to move their feet and use their hands to try and get hands in the face and hands up and trying to contest the shots. But Luca scored eight points essentially in the first two minutes of the game, and it was very clear right away he was going to have his, the ball in his hands as much as he possibly wanted, even more than we have come accustomed to when it comes to this Dallas Mavericks team. But, man, it was not just Luka Doncic torching this team. They were able to make 19 threes as a team, and they shoot well over 55% from the floor. This was just a complete ass-whooping from start to finish. And like I said, it was a wire-to-wire victory. Phoenix never led. Before we close the door on Phoenix's season here, I do want to talk about something that you were about to hint at, the coaching by Jason Kidd in this Mavericks unit here, because they did so much. Well, like, it was the little things for me. So one example from this game that I remember was that Jalen Brunson started off horribly and Dinwiddie made like his first three out of four baskets, and they kept – they put Dinwiddie on the bench for 30 seconds. And then when they put Luca back in, they put Dinwiddie back in as well and took Brunson out and basically let Dinwiddie cook with Luca together. Other thing, they got Dwight Powell involved, which remember I was the guy that was like, can we play Dwight Powell like five minutes just so he has his like time and that's it. But they kept him out there. They got him involved on offense and on defense. But that Mavericks defense against Devin Booker and Chris Paul was a beauty. Like I had never seen anything. I've never seen two superstars who we both think are in the top minimum 15 to 20 just get shut down both of them oh yeah for sure. those are two top 15 players yeah yeah so yeah t- talk to me about like that defense like what'd you see schematically and what'd you see because phoenix had no adjustments that's basically the way to put it phoenix was kind of screwed from the start 
So Phoenix actually shot sub 40% at the rim in the first half, which that's a real outlier. The league average is 62% at the rim offensively. Phoenix is towards the very top of the league at around 70% for the season. Even in this series, they've been above 62% as the league average. In this game, they were below 40% in the first half, and they just could not get an open look. The, they only scored five field goals in the first quarter. One of them was off of a Cam Johnson putback right underneath the basket. Only one of those made field goals was an open look. So Dallas was able to rally to shooters, throw multiple bodies at the ball handler, and still not give up anything when it comes to a backdoor cut or any kind of a button hook, or even the Phoenix Suns, as soon as they started to realize that they were going to get trapped on the high pick and roll, started to run one of those three-man Spain pick and rolls where they kind of funnel in Cam Johnson right behind the defense trying to create an open look, or at least run some kind of secondary action in which you can get him going full speed off the dribble. But Dallas had all of the counters. I could see Monty Williams physically becoming frustrated because Phoenix essentially came into this game feeling as though they had all of the tools in order to throw the right jabs and punches at this Phoenix Suns defense, or excuse me, at the Dallas Mavericks defense. But Dallas just put on a total masterclass. And I can't say enough about the defense of Maxi Kleba. And while Dorian Finney-Smith and Reggie Bullock really didn't bring much to the table offensively in this game, it was clear that they were going to let the Dallas backcourt carry them offensively while they just did everything that they could to make life hell for Booker and Paul. And that was their number one job. They fully took care of business from start to finish. And now Dallas is in the conference finals. Yeah. And a couple other takeaways I saw from this series, just generally uh, the decision to take out Josh Green from the rotation, put Frank Milikiwin in instead, which is good. Yep. The decision to cut back Powell's minutes, but somehow get him more involved the choice to basically cut the head off the Phoenix sneak by basically not having Chris Paul or Devin Booker have an ounce of space to work with. Like if, if DeAndre Aiden scored 30 points, Dallas would have been fine with that. Like there was a play this game where they played perfect defense. Jay Crowder got run off the three point line. He made a mid range and all of Dallas was cheering because if Jay Crowder is going to do that every single play, they're going to live with that. I, I will say, I think a way to end this, because I think we should move on to how this, the Phoenix, like, or I guess the uh, the Warriors Mavericks side of this for the conference finals. Wow, what a run for Phoenix. We have this whole hope last season where they make the finals, they're up 2-0, lose the last four games. This season, they cruise with the best record in both conferences. Everything's looking good. Booker's an MVP candidate. This is like the one last dance for CP3. And you end on this note. I think the important thing is that generally, what is the outlook of this team next season overall? Whoa, it has suddenly become grim in the Valley of the Sun. And I know that that's probably a step too far when it comes to just the fact that this team has a lot of young guns that play two ways, led by what is probably a future ultimate superstar in the NBA, which is Devin Booker. Right now, he's probably just a polished scorer who's still trying to figure out ways to become a more well-rounded offensive player. But they're going to have to figure out the conflict contract situation when it comes to DeAndre Ayton do they give him the max money and just yet another year of the same thing from Chris Paul which is cruising along through the regular season even the first round of the playoffs and he obviously has that masterful perfect really 
14 for 14 performance against the New Orleans Pelicans, but that was also the fourth biggest win total differential since the merger between those two teams, 28 wins more for Phoenix. And then Phoenix runs into a team that has an absolute apex predator on the other team. Last year's Giannis Dettokounmpo and this year's Luka Doncic. Once you get to face a player like that over a seven game series and they see a lot of the tactical schematic things that you throw at them in the first two games, you really have to continue to make those same adjustments. And it was Dallas who had all of the counters. It was the masterful coaching performance from Jason Kidd. And again, with this Phoenix Suns team, you start to realize when you go back and watch the film is like that Milwaukee Bucks NBA Finals series against this team last year. One of the things they basically said to these guys is, you're going to have to make a ton of hotly contested pull-up mid-range shots because we're not going to let you shoot threes as much as you would like to. And you're going to have to get into the paint and make things happen. DeAndre Ayton ultimately has become somebody who is known as one of the touch finesse hands bigs versus a guy that actually can use his large frame to his advantage. We saw it really in game one and game two, but then everything turned south and this Phoenix Suns team were 32 and nine, both at home and on the road. But what an awful way to essentially blow this season with back-to-back blowout losses. And now you're staring at a future where you'll probably be right back in this situation again next year, but the West is going to be back and stronger probably than ever next year with the Nuggets and Clippers getting back into the fold. And there are some other teams that are going to be taking huge steps forward, potentially Memphis, New Orleans. Even to jump in, I only I don't think the Lakers will go like thirty and fifty two next year either. I think they'll at least be maybe we'll we'll see. Yeah. (laughs) I think I think for me, real quick, what stands out easily because we again we did a podcast on this before the start of the postseason. Damn, was this Chris Paul's best chance to win a title? Oh my god! Yeah. And and now and now I'm looking at the resume and I'm like. Where do I rank them all time? Like we're, we're going to have a pod later, like probably a month from now with the top 25 players ever. And one of the toughest cuts will be Chris Paul. Like, does he fall in the 24 range or is he more in the 30 to 35 range? And I think this season you look at it and you're like, yes, Phoenix had a great year, all that sort of stuff, but he sucked this series. He didn't take over at all. And especially with game four fouling out and only playing 20 minutes. Uh, game three was a complete dud. They were up. This is the what is this? I think this is like the fifth series that Chris Paul and his team were up 2-0 and they lose the series. And that includes the the finals last year and this season. Like, yep. what am I supposed to make of that Chris Paul legacy? Now another another bullet kind of in the resume here. So Chris Paul has now become the first player in NBA history to lose seven straight game sevens. And a lot of that has to do with him just honestly failing to perform. This is not a case of, you know, you go down swinging, you're dropping 40 points and just your teammates didn't show up or anything like that. This is Chris Paul essentially coming up short, quite literally, because he's seeing too many bodies. And I don't know if it's just something that he's taken too much when it comes to the wherewithal of a grueling seven game series like this one and the one, quite frankly, last year 
that wound up biting him, biting him in the ass. But yeah, we're going to do that podcast in a couple of weeks when we rank probably the top 25 players. And we'll see if guys along that level are able to make that contest. Yes, we are. We always making that content. <laughs> okay, anyway, <laughs> that was Ricky Reports. Nice. <laughs> well, okay. a little Ricky cameo on the pod. Never thought it was. Yeah, yeah. No, but anyway, I was, I was looking at my rankings for the top 50 players of all time. And currently, he's in the class right now of Harden, Stockton, Nash when it comes to that level of guard. And I'm not sure if I would take him really head and shoulders over any of those other guys because the guys directly ahead of him are all guys that when it comes time for elimination games, closeout games, game sevens, games essentially on that level where it's do or die, those players elevated their games to that moment. And that's Kawhi, Barkley, David Robinson, players along that level who there are instances in their career when you look at yourself and say, you know what? He has a chance to become, if not already, the best player in the world. And those times pass them by. But when it comes to Chris Paul's legacy, he's always going to be thought of as one of the elite players of all time. But, yeah, you're right. He is – if if there is a club where you have to show your ID to get in and there's basically a VIP list of the Pantheon greats in Mount Olympus, he's probably getting bounced at the door. Yeah, I agree there. Okay. We got to shift over to Warriors Mavericks. This is a fascinating series because I honestly don't know what to pick. Like I, this is the first time I'm thinking about it heading into the, like their game one. I honestly don't know what to make of who's the, I imagine Golden State's probably the favorite, even though I think Dallas, I would not bet against Dallas right now. What's your early takeaway for that series just overall? I think for me, it's easily the Lucas Steph matchup. Who's going to be more at their peak of their powers. And more importantly, can Dallas's defense overcome the Warriors offense that could peak? And consequently, we just saw a Phoenix, a good defensive Phoenix team get smoked. Can Golden State, which I don't trust their defense all that much, do the same? But I want to hear your thoughts as well. So this might be the first time that I can remember really since the 2018 NBA Finals series where I don't think that Golden State will have the best player when they take the floor in game one. I even thought that that time Steph might have been better than Kawhi in the 2019 NBA Finals, but that one's much closer. Luka Doncic, he might have to outscore or at least outplay both of the Splash Brothers, but I think that that's actually something that is not too far off in terms of a lofty expectation. Look, this Golden State team has been the number one offense in basketball throughout the playoffs but they're actually towards the bottom when it comes to defensive teams. And there are certain matchups that they are going to have their hands full outside of just trying to figure out how to hold Luka under 40 points a game. But my early lean when it comes to this series is going to be in the hands of Golden State. There are different things that we have seen them do to try and neutralize teams that try to go at them with a one-man band style of offense as well as defense so I don't know if we're going to see a lot of Wiggins on Luka we might even see Draymond post him up and then the Golden State Warriors decide to throw out Kevon Looney and to try and hold off the Dallas offense when it comes to their team attacking the rim with their small lineup 
offensively for Golden State, this is going to be probably their most difficult matchup of the playoffs so far because Dallas is a team that does not allow teams to shoot threes very well. They only allowed the third fewest amount of attempts throughout this season. Generating those attempts, even if they're not good looks, is something that I'm going to be looking for really early in the series because once you're able to generate those looks, you're able to generate better looks because there are just so many cerebral minds when it comes to that Golden State offense and the way that they funnel players through back screens, everybody sets screens, on, off ball, any time of type of different actions. They run a much more complex offense than Phoenix does, where Phoenix is either two or three man pick and roll, and then it's occasional swing to the corner for contingency plan. Golden State can run a million different off options in the half court, and they're going to try to get out and run in transition. Again, I think that Golden State has a really slight advantage, but this thing is going to go six or seven because Luka Doncic has never lost a series in less than six games, and that was just his first taste of the NBA playoffs three seasons ago. So, I, again, I lean Golden State here, especially with home court and the ability for Draymond Green as well as some of those other players off the bench. Again, this is a series where hopefully Gary Payton is able to return by midway through the series. But even if not, we could see more minutes from Juan Toscano Anderson yes, or Otto, Por yes, Otto, Porter Otto Porter Jr. And then even, I don't know if this, this is a series for more of the Kuminga flashy here and there rookie, but Golden State, I think, owns the slight edge. What say you? So uh, I, I agree with a couple takeaways there. Off the bat, for me, the series is a series of pace. We know Dallas, at its best, operates in a slow down tempo on offense and in a set defense in the back uh, in the back court and the front court. My question for Golden State is: Do you adapt to Dallas's way of play, or do you keep running your own system? Because, for instance, on offense. They don't usually hunt switches or hunt mismatches. They just kind of run their system, get ball movement, actions through screens, and kind of moving off the ball to the three-point line. They're not going to be hunting Luka in this series like, say, other teams would. Number two, if you're Golden State, I want to see if they run or not because I think they could take advantage of a very slow Dallas team. I think they're slightly more athletic than, than that team. But the problem, though, is this came back to game six, Grizzlies-Warriors, they were incredibly sloppy with the ball. And I think Dallas, for them being a good defense, will take advantage of that and get a lot of points off that too. For me, I think the point you made, though, is very incredible. Does Golden State go small? And if they go small, how reliant are they on Draymond, both at the five and in man coverage of Luka? Do we see more – do we see Juan Toscano Anderson play like 15 minutes a night to play the – to like cover Dwight Powell or Finney Smith at the five? Do we see Kaminga play 20 minutes? Do we see Iguodala sliding at the four for 10 minutes here or there? I think Golden State choosing to play at Dallas's pace and their style or going against it, that's the matchup here for the series easily. Yeah, no, you're right. This is probably going to come down to which team is able to dictate their better pace of play. For Golden State, right, they want to create stops to the rim, especially when Draymond is a guy who gets the board, he's able to get out and transition calling the shots offensively to me though if you're dallas you have to find a way to make golden state play in the half court yep. when they were facing phoenix and they were at their best in this series they were able to fight off that early ball screen 
force guys to go downhill towards their smaller team. But this Golden State team is a little bit different where they've been through thick and thin and they have their core guys that they were able to win championships with while they still have some kind of hybrid with the younger guys. For me, I noticed a couple of things in the Golden State Memphis series when it comes to sort of a changing of the guard. If you were somebody during that first series against Denver who said, you know what, Jordan Poole might be a better player already than Klay Thompson, given the defensive deficiencies that both players have. You probably wanted to pump the brakes now after seeing both of those players play longer, but I don't know if Klay Thompson is going to be able to get those same wide-open three-point looks against Dallas because they're probably going to do their best to run all of these guys off the three-point line. Again, they do not allow three-point attempts at the same rate as any of these other teams. But Golden State, as a really promising sign, they were able to out-rebound Memphis. They were able to out-rebound Memphis five out of those six games. That's going to be something else that I'm really looking forward to because I don't think that either of these teams are really going to want to crash the offensive glass because if you're – Golden State having to chase Luka down the floor and you're able to get those open looks right away. That's what both teams are going to be hunting. Man, I'm so excited for this. I don't know if I've just somehow hyped it up within my own mind from the beginning of this segment, but the more that I think about the X's and O's, Steve Kerr on one end, Jason Kidd on the other. Two former point guards right there on championship teams. So, Yeah, and each of them are going to be coaching the, the game's two best point guards right now. So I think the reason why it's exciting because I want to move on to the Eastern Conference. I think it's a battle of old school versus new school. It's the the always present Warriors from the last half decade to this new team that remember we were always we were like think about the beginning of this season we were like if Luca doesn't make it past the first round what's next for him in the Mavericks and now there are four wins from the NBA Finals which is it's crazy to think about but I also think it's a battle of styles. It's a team that's slow and half court versus a team that is bombing threes away and playing kind of like this very crazy but somehow put together ball movement i think it's it's iso ball versus like team collection like that it's 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 contrast working together here and i agree i think it's a six or seven game series we might honestly do another this might have to be a series we break down game by game because it's just so fascinating to look at it but i think we should move out east because another crazy thing happened which is that boston did not think would pull it out they win handily against Milwaukee. As a Miami fan, I'm partly terrified because I did a pod earlier today and I predicted the Celtics would win. My, my of course, pod fan being, a, or my pod guest being a Heat fan, picked the Heat to win. But I want to first off hear your early thoughts on Boston, Milwaukee, some takeaways from that game seven that also happened today. Well, I must say, going into this game, Boston was actually a team who was just 5-11 and 11 in games decided by three points or less this entire season and two of the three Milwaukee wins were by two points besides game one in this series Boston has led for over 70 percent of the minutes and quite frankly they have dominated today they outscored Milwaukee by 54 from the three-point line in game two they outscored them by 51 if Giannis was not scoring 40 plus and you're getting 20 to 25 from Drew Holiday. I just didn't see the route to winning from Milwaukee, given how much of a no-show 
Grayson Allen was over these last few games, both offensively and certainly on the defense. I was going to say, which which one was worse? There's a debate for both. <laughs> well, he was somebody who quite literally couldn't make a shot no matter where he was on the floor. And then on the other end of the floor, I don't know if he could stop anybody from making a shot. So you're doing a harm to your team no matter where you are on the floor. And quite frankly, I don't know, would Milwaukee have been better off if they had ran out four guys there? Because then they at least would have been tempted to try and chase those guys with more momentum. But anyway. Well, I was going to say, I'm, I was actually a big advocate. This sounds so weird because it, it it's just, you know, 2022 at the NBA. I was in favor of them starting Drew Holiday and Pat Connaughton together at the 1-2 and then doing Bobby Portis. Giannis, Brooke Lopez, because at least you are big, you're semi-athletic, and there's only one defensive weakness on that team, whereas with today, you had Grayson Allen and sometimes Bobby Portis, and then you had Brooke Lopez playing drop coverage, so you couldn't really, you were just had conflicting styles there, and of course, the decision by Coach Bud to just keep Grayson Allen in there and go on the Grayson Allen train was just a horrible, horrible mistake. Okay, so when the Jazz played the Mavericks in round one, it was very clear that they were going to dare Josh Green to shoot wide open threes. Then you live if he makes one out of five. That's not Grant Williams. I'm sorry. Grant Williams shot 41% from downtown on this season, and that's down from 47% over the first 50 games. Yeah. He comes out, and he has playoff career high. He sets the NBA all-time game seven record for three-point attempts. And he makes this, seven wasn't, this isn't the 2020 bubble where you can leave him and Kemba Walker open from three if you're Miami. Right. Like, that's not the case at all here. No, Grant Williams actually missed the first 25 threes of his NBA career, but it seems like he's shooting 70% into, uh, since then. So he was able to rebound from kind of a down games three, really four through six in this one. But Jason Tatum comes out and plays an A minus to maybe even an A-level Game 7 performance. Giannis looked great through the first quarter, and then I think only had 15 points, eight boards, and three assists from there on out. Pedestrian by his standards. And again, if you didn't get an A-minus to an A-plus performance from him, probably a 40, 15, and 5, then there was just no route to winning this, given the disparity from the three-point line and how unless you're going to pull Brooke Lopez right away and just commit to Bobby Portis trying to get up in guys' faces, crowd the three-point line, and dare guys to go off the dribble versus some of that backside help rotation that Giannis is so good at, there was just no way to see this team winning, especially given today where once that garden gets rocking, it's really hard to punch back. And again, Mike Budenholzer can scream, he can pow, he can do whatever he wants from the sideline. But as long as you're going to stick to that stubborn drop coverage and try to just dare guys to make threes over and over again, it worked to perfection three out of seven times, but they needed it four out of seven, and that was the difference. Well, another thing, too, from this series, and it's, it's not even just game seven, it was the whole series – too many times they just let Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown just find whoever they wanted to score on and just put them in isolation. And we know boss is one of the best at finding guys and basically letting them go to work against the weakest defender on that team. Uh, I will say, I, I mean, the big question of course here is like, would this series that played out if Chris Middleton were healthy? I think the bucks clearly were dwindling and lacking in any wing help or 
uh, offensive creation whatsoever. I think Middleton definitely would have saved that. But then karma works its way around in the NBA. Last year, they don't have Harden or, Kate or uh, Kyrie against the yep. Nets in the semifinals last year. So I guess it comes full circle. The real question, of course, from Milwaukee, I think, is like, what's the avenue for improvement next year? We know that Giannis is in the middle of his prime. You're still going to have Middleton and Holiday. I'd imagine not too much structural change unless they fire Coach Bud, which I don't think they will. I feel like it's just like a wait and see next year, right? Yeah, you're definitely not hitting any kind of a panic button if you're Milwaukee because you have a guy who might go down as one of the 10 best players of all time. We'll see over the next five seasons if they're able to put together some kind of a dominance run. But the one thing that I would say that you have to address on this team is figuring out a way to fill that sixth man role off the bench. Pat Connaughton is a guy who is a three-point specialist and can come in and try to play savvy defense, but they're really looking for another shot creator, I would say, out of that tertiary role because they have Holiday and Middleton who are good for 45, even 50 points on any given night, but I think you're just looking for another bucket, basically, because there were too many times in this series where you could obviously see the deficiencies that they had without Middleton on the floor. But you could also see guys who were just sit and wait, essentially, offensively, where you would put Giannis as the main on-ball creator. And if you're able to get a guy that is just savvy at getting downhill, finding his way to a little mid-range or a push shot or any kind of a reverse bank shot, there are guys out there, and I don't know if they struck out when they decided to let Malcolm Brogdon go a few years ago, but Again, I don't think that there's anything to really be concerned about if you're Milwaukee. I think, by the way, I know that it really doesn't mean much at this point. But, yeah, if they had Chris Middleton, they might have won this series. Not only just won it anyway, they might have won it in five games, actually. But you could see the glaring deficiencies. As long as Boston were to be able to get back and not really turn the ball over, force Milwaukee to play in the half court, Milwaukee did not get good looks really at all this entire series. And the reason that they won game one in a route is because Boston turned it over 18 times, 12 of which were live ball turnovers that resulted in over 20 fast break points. So those are the different categories that Milwaukee dominated during their wins. But unless they were going to have that same kind of performance today, it was going to take some kind of a crazy, yeah, like a 45, 20 or, 40, 15, 10, some kind of crazy all-time iconic performance from Giannis. He probably had his weakest game of the entire series, and you're not going to win a game seven, especially on the road playing like that. So three takeaways that you kind of mentioned that I want to break down. Uh, first of which, you mentioned they need an offensive creator off the bench. Uh, Malik Monk and uh, Colin Sexton are two free agents right now. If they would, uh, if Milwaukee were able to fork that up, they could be sort of that like, I'm trying to figure out if they need more of like an offensive gunner or more of like a pick and roll guy. Cause to be fair, this team cannot run a pick and roll. If Drew Holiday doesn't have the ball, like they can't run any sort of, I don't know. They, 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 it was a lot of Giannis isolation. At least what I saw this series, they really struggled to just get basic movement around the, off the ball. At least that's what I saw. I will say to, to, to add on to this series, I, I agree with you. I don't think there should be, any concern from Milwaukee in the upcoming offseason? This was the game plan all year, and they just got unfortunately unlucky with the Chris Middleton injury, but they easily just wanted to coast in the regular season 
and duke it out in the playoffs. I would argue if they got past Boston, they were the the title favorites in both conferences, even against Miami. So nothing to be ashamed there. So the real question is though, if we think Ma- uh, the Mavericks and Warriors series is like these two contrasting styles, Miami and Boston are about as close as you can get to profiling two teams together. Jimmy and Tatum, I would argue Tatum slightly better, but Jimmy, the way he's playing, they're on that same tier two superstar level now. You got Bam and kind of the Al Horford, Robert Williams, just like very awesome center. And then both awesome supporting cast for these two teams. Early kind of predictions, takeaways, or thoughts about this series, which I think will be arguably the best out of any series we might see in this po- in the playoffs. There's that old boxing saying, which is styles make fights, but you mentioned it. You touched on it right now is basically these two teams can look at each other in the mirror and kind of see the exact same team staring back at them. When I think about the starting fives though, I want to see, is this potentially a series where we get to see more Duncan Robinson? Because one of the reasons why I think that Miami would have had a shot against Milwaukee as a completely different series versus this Boston series, which is Miami is going to get up a lot of three-point attempts, and so is this Boston team. And honestly, it's just a question of who defends it better. Both of these teams are flawless defensively in the half court. And the one thing that I will say I think tends to favor Boston here is they have bigs that can shoot. So trying to move Bam Adebayo around like a chess piece that you're trying to get him to chase, you're able to slide guys in when they move the basketball around the backside. Coming off the bench for Miami, though, is Tyler Hero going to be the Tyler Hero that we've seen where we go, wow, that is the sixth man of the year? Or is it going to be a guy where we look at and say, oh, man, I don't know, Tatum just found a way to get him posted up and then he's just going to take him right off the dribble or he's going to get to that little unguardable 15-footer on the fade. I think that we'll see a lot of Butler guarding Tatum. I would be interested to see if this is a series where Jalen Brown is essentially the leading scorer just because we've seen how dominant Jimmy Butler as well as P.J. Tucker and some of these other defenders that Miami has to be able to just funnel in over and over and over again. I am so excited for this series because we're going to see two opposites go at it when it comes to that contrasting style in the Western Conference. But here, this is going to be essentially a grit and grind entire series because I'm not expecting either team to really get quality shots over and over again. The one thing that we have seen, though, and I think it would favor Boston here, is they have also been a really good to great offensive team themselves. So we might see a lot of 100 to 95 victories for them. But Miami, it's hard to bet against them, especially the way that they have played at home this season. They have not lost a home game yet in this postseason. And I would say right now, they are probably the slight favorites actually over Boston, even though I'm going to go ahead and put it on record that I'm going to take Boston in six. I think that Boston's able to seal one of those in Miami. It might take one of those just superstar performances where you kind of don't really know what's going to happen until the fourth quarter when you start to just see those tough shots that are hotly contested. They fall and you go to yourself, you know what? 
Tatum was just slightly taller than our defender, and he's getting those long, crested jumpers that just hit nothing but net. Kind of like the Game 6 performance that was able to send it back to Boston in this Milwaukee series. So the, the takeaway for me is that it's kind of hard to grade and predict this series because here's the way I look at it. If you're Miami, I'm looking at your resume in the playoffs against Philly and Atlanta, right? And if I'm Boston, I'm looking at the resume against Brooklyn and Milwaukee. Tatum has been great so far in the postseason against both those teams. But defensively, at least against Brooklyn and for the most part against Milwaukee, he's had easier matchups. Like Brooklyn, there was no ball stopper to stop Tatum. Uh, with Milwaukee minus Giannis, there was no ball stopper to stop him. In, uh, with Milwaukee, yeah. With Miami, though, the entire team practically is average to above average to great to your best defenders in the entire NBA. Yep. And the problem I have with Boston, I mean, this is similar to Miami, but I think Miami can get off more threes. Boston, I think their offense will be way more bogged down because they're relying on a shorter rotation. Like at, at a certain point, if you're playing Tatum and Brown too many minutes, you're going to have to rely on Peyton Pritchard to make like a three or two. You're going to have to rely on Al Horford to keep being this hot in the postseason, which he hasn't. He's not going to be at the entire time. I promise you that. You're going to have to rely on Derek White to hit more than one three a game, which is a, a bet I would gladly make that he won't do. Like, you're going to have to rely on Marcus Smart to make more than, like, two threes a game, to be honest with him. With Miami's defense, I think you can exploit Boston's offense more than the other way around. And you have to look at Miami with now – you have Bam Adebayo still, which he was dominant. People forget he was dominant against Boston, and the one thing that Boston sucks at is physicality. And they did a pretty good job against Milwaukee, I'd argue. But Bam out of bio, though, against Daniel Tice, who we remember kicked his butt in 2020, and injured Robert Williams, who we don't know what the status is on that, and Al Horford, who's 35. Like, this should be the series for Bam out of bio to dominate. Like, we're going to say Jalen Brown's the X factor here for Boston. I'd say it's Bam easily for Miami. Because if Bam is dominant – I don't see Boston winning the series. And if Bam is going to be what he was in Philly, which was the good defender but not aggressive on offense, I don't see Miami pulling this off. Like, Bam needs to be aggressive so they can have a good paint presence and a good three-point presence. Uh, but your thoughts on all that? I mostly agree with that. I think that the sentiment, though, of Boston having the better starting five here is going to come into play because they're actually a team that is able to have more of a sustainable, good look half-court offense, even though I expect all of these games to be really muddy because you have two of the best shot callers from the sidelines. And we have seen kind of time and time again, this Boston team just get it out the mud in a lot of these games. They have had the tougher route to this conference finals, certainly. And I don't know if I necessarily agree that Tatum has not had a tough matchup really at all yet in order to get his points because we have seen Drew Holiday mostly guard Jalen Brown given the fact that he had to step up and play more of that secondary versus the tertiary offensive guy. But Milwaukee really doesn't have any slouches outside of Grayson Allen on their team really at all. The one thing that I will say here that I think is kind of interesting though is can I get anything from that secondary big from Miami, Dwayne Dedman? Uh, no, no. 
You cannot. <laughs> no. And that's, that's something that is going to be really close to look at here, though, is because Horford can stretch the floor. Daniel Tice will probably make, I don't know, three or four threes the entire series. And then you look up and down the rosters. Essentially, it just comes down to I give the edge slightly to the team that has the best player in the series, which is Jason Tatum. I agree. By a hair over Jimmy, by a hair over Jimmy Butler. But you're really talking about a tier two guy versus a tier three guy in the NBA. And when you look up and down the rosters, they are very, very close. But I'm going to roll with the team that has just been, quite frankly, the best in the entire NBA since February. And are arguably the number one team during the entire second half of the season. Ugh, this is a really fun series because I don't know if we will have seen a series when it comes to this type of defensive half-court physicality really since, I don't know, Cavs-Celtics in 2008 or... Would you you even say like Pacers-Pistons? I think I think we're talking that level, like like about as close as you can get to that without using the 0-4 rule. The the R test Pistons, or I mean the R test Pacers. Yeah, I, I'd say probably like O five. Yeah. Yeah, around that maybe. I will say the one thing with this series I love the most is that these teams have such like awesome trajectories. Like they're kind of the same, where they both had yep. their runs in like the early 2010s. Things faded away, and then rush back to prominence in two different ways, like Boston through the draft, Miami through acquiring kind of like outside lottery guys and then free agency with Butler. 2020, they both have an awesome season. Miami edges out Boston. 2021, we know the legacy with that season. Both get crushed in the first round. Then back this season, Miami's the number one team in the East. Boston's the number one team in the NBA since January. And you have this like bubble rematch right here. Like the moment that Massachusetts has been waiting for, for months and this is going to be an exciting ass series <laughs> they can't get the image of that bam pasting jason tatum's potential game tying layup to the oh, backboard yeah. out of their minds or or, or, the, or the duncan robinson like made three to go up 14 <laughs> you just see brad stevens yep. and the whole bench like they look like they just like got dead like died <laughs> <laughs> well yeah i mean you mentioned duncan robinson i don't know if we'll see him much in this series or if we can I haven't really heard much, really looked into it much, but have you heard anything more on Kyle Lowry's status? He, I, I think Miami purposely knew not to play in game six because they were, I, I think they knew they were better off playing with Gabe Vincent and Victor Oladipo than injured Kyle Lowry. I don't really know the status. If I were Miami, this is a hot take. I think they should play Lowry off the bench. I think they should keep starting Gabe Vincent and keep the starting five the same. And then when Lowry feels healthy, make that sub. But I think what we saw with Miami in game six with Philly was that the chemistry was there. If Lowry's injured and not 100% healthy, he's just going to clog the, the wall oil machine there. When it comes to Duncan Robinson, by the way, don't be surprised. The interesting chess piece of the board here for Brad Stevens and Coach Spo is when do they play Peyton Pritchard and Duncan Robinson? They're two white, the, the one white guy per team. Where, where, where do they fit together on the board? <laughs> I think in terms of the depth chart of all teams, if we were to rank like the top 20 players in the series, Duncan Robinson is the better of the two players, but Peyton Pritchard will probably be the guy that gets more playing time. To me though, you mentioned Gabe Vincent probably going to stay in the starting lineup. 
are there times when Boston gets themselves into trouble because Marcus Smart just thinks that he's way better offensively? And That's exactly why I want to start Gabe Vincent because I can just <laughs> see Marcus Smart being like, yep. yeah, it, it's that logic too. Or like if we have Dwayne Dedman in, I can imagine Al Horford being like, perfect. It's like my time to shine. <laughs> and it's like, or Daniel Tice, like, oh, let me be aggressive. I, I don't know. It's like reverse psychology a little bit. Yes. So yeah, yeah. So our finals prediction was both wrong, I think, because I think we both had Suns uh, Milwaukee. I'm yeah. going to go for my finals, finals, final finals prediction after this crazy year. I'm going to go – oh, it pains me to say this, man, but I'm, I'm going to go Celtics, dude. I, I, I kind of agree. I, I don't – it's hard because I'm a Miami Heat fan, but I really – Boston scares me. They're just a really damn good team. They're, they've been great this year. They are so solid top to bottom. And, and, wait, and real I quick, if there's, if there's one thing we've learned from NBA history, the, the hottest teams always win. Like, it doesn't matter how you start. It's kind of like how the middle end plays out. Whatever is like – whoever's in a groove always pulls out. And Milwaukee – or uh, Boston just beat Milwaukee and Brooklyn, two of their biggest teams they were supposed to face. Like, they're, they're doing good right now. Yes. And I'll, I'll go with uh, Golden State out west. So, I got Golden State-Boston. So, I think that both of those two teams make the finals as well. I think that – Ultimately, Boston wins the NBA championship. Interesting. I, honestly, oh, wow. Because <laughs> I thought that even after this series or going into the Boston-Milwaukee series, the winner of this feels like it's certainly on a finals trajectory but might even be the best team, especially if, you know, Dallas was able to upset Phoenix, which, of course, they were. And a Boston-Golden State finals would probably be the best ratings-wise for the NBA. Personally, I don't like either of those teams at all, and I would probably throw, I don't know, punches at my TV screen. Although I will say this. I will be in the Bay Area at the beginning of the NBA Finals, and I would happily get a ticket to Game 1 of the NBA Finals, especially if boston's coming to town or even miami at this point miami is probably the team that i'm going to cheer for the most at all at this point because do you, wait, do, do, you know just, do you know what i'm rooting for it's the easiest oh, choice wow, out there. I, heat, heat mavs we need a round three we had 06 we had 2011 <laughs> we got to bring it back three different iterations it's back <laughs> yeah no it would be the rubber match too and it wouldn't be the uh the trip the triple a or uh matchup anymore because the, the Miami Heat changed their name. They're no longer American Airlines. <laughs> they, oh, oh my. Yes, yes, yes. All right. Well, uh, Micah, great episode as always. There was definitely a lot to unpack from this playoffs, and we're close to the finish line with the four teams left over. Uh, we'll have, of course, coverage to preview the NBA Finals at some point, and of course, a couple other episodes we have planned, but great uh, episode as always. Thanks for joining. Thank you.